On this last Sunday of Advent, we will be in Revelation. Last time I checked, I believe that's the last book of your Bible. Chapter 21, almost the last chapter, in verses 1 through 8. Something you always like to hear from me. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to ask you right off the bat and stand up and hear with me the Lord of or the word of the Lord. Should have had another cup of coffee, sorry. (laughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, or throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and they will be their God. He, man, and he will be their God. He will wipe away <clears throat> every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his son. I will be his God. And he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. On that uplifting note, let's pray. Father, I've already demonstrated that it's not good to come here to listen to what I would say. We want to come and hear your voice. Holy Spirit, you wrote these words down for a reason, whatever emotions they provoke in us. I have no doubt there are they are here for our good. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you did come as a baby. But over and over in the scriptures, when an account of your life is given quickly, it's always about you came so that you might die for our sins. Many of the sins listed out here in verse 8. Help us to cling to you today. Help us to take hope that you did not stay dead, but that you rose. That you are ruling, you are reigning. And that you are coming again to rule and reign over this world in the fullest extent. We are grateful for that. Holy Spirit, do a work of grace and mercy in our hearts today. Say what it is you desire. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You and I know that we don't live 
in a perfect world. We're especially familiar with that in years like 2020. We don't need to be believers to believe in the reality of sin. Sure, some people who are not Christian may not call it sin, but we see, we know, and if we have a shred of decency in us, we're angered by injustice. We're angered by things that are just downright wrong. We're angered by corrupt leaders. We're angered at death and illness. We're angered at tragedies. We're angered when we see guilty people succeeding or innocent people failing and losing or being abused. It seems universal that everybody believes something is wrong with the world. It needs fixing. And so what many people think Christianity is, is just one avenue. One way of trying to fix the world's problems. Problems. See, some people think that we all see the broken world, but what we argue about all the time is how to fix it. The Christians think they need to fix it that way, or the Republicans and the conservative thinkers think tradition, moral integrity, and systems and structures will fix it, and the Democrats and liberals think out of the ordinary what what seems to be progressive thinking, liberty to each and every person's conscience will heavy-handed governing authorities, managing the world's money, funneling into what we think the right sources will fix it, and and then there's extremist groups thinking that warfare will usher in God's world's ideals to fix it, and some thinking becoming one with nature and the universe, finding a spiritual cohesive union will all fix... See, everybody's, everybody's got ideas of what they think to be a solution. But because they disagree with other people from other worldviews, well, now the disagreements just add to the problem. We all know what's wrong because we all share in what's wrong. I talked about this last week. The Bible talks about this idea of federal headship. Where in 1 Corinthians 15, but also Paul talks about it in Romans 5.12, he says... Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. We have this shared problem, you and I. And like the Tower of Babel, everyone seems to be working to achieve a utopia of sorts, but no one understands each other. Everybody's fighting over how to achieve it. And so it separates us. With the coming of Christ the first time, what we celebrate in the Christmas season, though we often stop to think, dwell, and meditate on those first few months or years of His life, many times in the Scriptures, whether it be in John 1 or in some of Paul's writings, as I prayed earlier, we're given very succinct summaries of the reason that Jesus came. Even out of the mouth of Jesus in John 3, Jesus sums up His life in those memorable verses. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son. In those seven words, we hear both the incarnation and His glorification or His sacrifice. 
He gave. See, that's, that's the incarnation. God is giving us Himself. But also gave is the idea of offering. He gave up. He gave Christ for a purpose so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. He gave His Son to save us. Jesus' one mission summed up. The reason He's in the proverbial cradle is the cross. He's the reason for the season. And so instead of people working for utopia, working for heaven, heaven comes to earth. That's why we have this picture in Acts 2 after Christ died for the sins of the world, after He has shown Himself to many people, revealing that He is who He says He is. He has died and He's resurrected. In other words, He is sinless, incapable of staying dead because of sins. Rather, He has the power to forgive sins and He resurrects and He ascends. And in Acts 2, the Tower of Babel is realized and reversed. And instead of coming together to make a utopia, they come together to speak the languages of the world inspired by the Holy Spirit to declare the proverbial utopia has come in the power, work, and grace of Jesus Christ. All this, though, is just a preamble. You ever read your Bibles and say, wow, that's a lot, and Jesus is like, I got more in the tank, buddy. <laughs> this is just a foreshadow, a down payment. The same Spirit that fell on the Tower of Babel in that Tower of Babel reversal, I should say, can fall on us and works in us, through us, makes us want to desire God as we should and reverses the effects of the fall, but much remains. Because the fact that you and I can identify that something is profoundly wrong with our world, it compels us to want to get on the wagon of many causes and trying to fix it, but it tells us, all of this tells us that we live in a world that still needs fixing. The good news is this. Christ is still the answer. He came the first time to pour out the Spirit, but he, he promises to come again to not only resurrect the inner life, but to resurrect and to redeem all of creation. Hear this with me again in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. How does the Bible open up? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what is a recurring phrase that God says after He makes things? He saw that it was good until sin enters the world. And then, like we after Christ, after God, Jesus, God, begins to see and to judge the world as not good. After the first sin. He promises Jesus in Genesis 3.15. But then, after more, much more sinning, we get a depressing summary of God's heart in Genesis 6. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth. He was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created 
off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And then the passage then gives us hope that God favored Noah. And so God wipes out mankind with a flood, save Noah and his family who starts the world over. The Apostle Peter sees this sort of judgment as a type to come. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Second Peter says the world of that time perished and it was flooded by the same word. The present heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now there are two ways to take passages of judgment like this. In fear and cowering, and maybe even we might be so audacious to to judge God for being so judgmental. (laughs) Or, you and I can identify with God and have God's heart and admit and confess that the sin of the world grieves us too. It, It seems like every inclination of the human mind is nothing but evil all the time. But thank the Lord that there is coming a day of a new heavens and a new earth Now what's interesting is how John, the author of the book of Revelation, seeing a vision of God, is told to identify this new heavens and earth. Did any of this, did this throw off any of you? It seemed kind of an arbitrary random fact. Like of all the things about a new heavens and an earth that you could tell us about, like maybe the weather or no more pollution, what's going on with this? And the sea was no more. Like, that's almost kind of a downer. I can't go to the beach in the new heavens and the new earth. The sea, for us, asked Dean, is one of the most awe-inspiring and sometimes terror-inspiring realities of the world for us. You're more than welcome to take this phrase literally, but we have to realize something about Revelation. This might get me in hot water, excuse the pun, sea, hot water, but... The type of literature that John is writing is called apocalyptic literature. And it's heavily laden with imagery and symbolism. And since John is Jewish, writing largely for still a Jewish audience, or an audience who is likely at least familiarizing themselves with Jewish literature, many pagans and Gentiles, no doubt, going to read the books of the Old Testament, it's going to be Jewish imagery and Jewish symbolism. To give you a current example that you might understand, if you know your American history, what if I told you that I crossed the Delaware to only find a Benedict Arnold waiting for me on the other side? If you think about it, you might think that I made a heroic crossing of a river, perhaps a timely crossing, perhaps at a last and final hour as it was for George Washington. It was kind of the 11th hour for the colonists to turn around the war. But if I told you that Benedict Arnold was waiting for me on the other side, you would maybe then think that uh, I made this heroic crossing to only find who waited for me was a betrayer. The real Benedict Arnold was a well-known traitor in the Revolutionary War. So who waited for me was perhaps somebody we trusted but ended up turning. Now someone from a different country who perhaps never studied the Revolutionary War like we do would no doubt be lost. Or they might say, well, he literally crossed the Delaware River and he met someone named Benedict Arnold. They wouldn't know if he was friend or foe waiting for me on the other side. Does that make sense? Follow me. The sea was in Jewish imagery, Jewish imagination, a symbol of earthly rebellion or chaos or danger. 
in a more seafaring age, we might know why. Storms, sinkings, drownings, giant creatures. (laughs) In fact, the author uses this symbolism earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, which opens this way. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, we're not going to dissect all of that symbolism, but you finally, you probably know the dragon's not a good character. And usually Satan in the Scriptures. So you get the idea that whatever coming out of the sea, whatever this is a picture of in Revelation 13, it's not good. It's evil. And here in Revelation 21, John says the sea is no more in the new heavens and the new earth. Does he mean there are literally no more bodies of water? Or does he mean evil chaos and rebellion is no more? See, you're welcome to say, well, what if he means both? I want to take this passage literally. Go ahead. Have fun. I'm just saying we don't have to necessarily because John is writing all throughout Revelation symbolically. Nobody forces us to believe that Jesus is literally a lamb or has literally seven stars on his head or is literally holding seven lamps. He might kind of fall over or literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. Furthermore, the absence of evil, the sea was no more, shows up here in a few verses said literally. What's neat to me is that all the way back in the prophet of Habakkuk, he foresees a day where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. So, the sea, evil, evildoers are no more, but the sea of the knowledge of the Lord's glory will now cover the earth. A new heavens and a new earth awaits us. That's what God will bring. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I called this sermon joy to the world so joy to the world a new heavens and a new earth and the song usually goes the lord will come (laughs) but here in john it says john is writing the bride will come (laughs) writing in symbols again think with me again if i were to say i crossed the delaware only to find benedict arnold waiting for me and maybe the reality was i never crossed a literal delaware river and maybe the person waiting was not named benedict arnold but you get the subtle idea of what's going on because I spoke in symbols. Now is this a literal rebuilt Jerusalem? Is God going to drop a new blueprinted buildings and all just pop down on Jerusalem, Israel as we know it? We talked about this same passage last week in Hebrews, actually. Uh, we talked about Hebrews 12 where the author informs us, Christian, that you and I are not alone when we worship. We're not alone, but Hebrews 11 goes through a large roster of the faithful before us. And Hebrews 12 opens that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all those people who went before us. And in the act of worship, perhaps even in the communal worship, we're told in Hebrews 12 that we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the the, the heavenly Jerusalem. But then listen to how the author describes it. He describes the city of the living God in the heavenly Jerusalem to myriads of angels of festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. Those are the past saints. To a judge 
who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Old Testament foreshadows, New Testament realities. Old Testament Israel is a holy people. Jerusalem is its capital. New Testament, the the, the church is a holy people and the capital is God's spiritual capital. Just as people pilgrimaged to Jerusalem, so we are strangers and pilgrims in a foreign land on our way to the spiritual capital. When the new heavens and the new earth arrives, we, along with Jesus, His saints and angels, will descend on earth. That's how John actually identifies the holy city. The new Jerusalem, quote, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I've never heard of a city prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. But what's all over the New Testament? I hear imagery of a bride being prepared for her husband as the church, the people of God, prepared for her husband, her groom, Jesus. In fact, in this same chapter, Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10, tells us an angel directs John to, quote, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this is what descends in the second heaven, or I should say, as the first heaven and earth pass away and the new heaven and the earth comes. And as the bride comes, let earth receive her king. In verses 3 through the first half of verse 6, we read, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and He will live with them. They will be His peoples and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In these verses, I see three general points. Let earth receive the king. So let earth receive him physically. Let earth receive him wholeheartedly. And then the last progression is, Thus says the Lord. So in the beginning, when God created the first heavens and the earth, and it was consistently good, you got the idea that God was in the habit of interacting with Adam and Eve in a very real, tangible, physical way. God and Adam talk. Eve quotes God to the serpent. She didn't have a Bible. She had Jesus. She had God. God sets out into the garden to see Adam and Eve, as if this was a common experience. He's just taking his daily walk to go see his buddies. Except for on that account that we have of God walking through the garden, Adam and Eve try to hide after sinning. Just a quick side note, don't try to hide from God. (laughs) He's God, he'll probably find you. In any case, we see the entire Bible yearns for this reunion. For this reuniting of God with His people as they did in the garden. Perhaps the first biggest example is the tabernacle in the wilderness. See, God says in Exodus 25.8, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Even so, there are still obstacles, right? Rules still separate God from His people due to sin. 
And when those rules are abused or ignored, we see people die because of it. (laughs) And so the tabernacle, a traveling tent with the people of God, becomes the temple, a permanent sanctuary in Jerusalem. And the temple leans into the prophets like Jeremiah most significantly prophesying of a day where God says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. Jesus comes and we sang it. He is Emmanuel, God with us, so the angel tells Joseph. And even though Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we know this, that Jesus, when he was here for his purposes, was here in flesh and blood and had a body just like us, he was confined to one place. (laughs) So in other words, if you weren't in the same room with Jesus, you weren't in the presence of God. You didn't have access to him. But this is why Jesus then says, if he has to leave, if he doesn't, if he didn't go, the comforter wouldn't come. Now we come back to Acts, where again, he falls out on, on all those who have faith and come to him, and now people know the Lord because he dwells in them. And what Revelation seems to be getting at here is one more final realization of that. That Jesus will be available physically to all those who love Him. He will be available visibly. We will see Him face to face, 1 Corinthians 13. God's dwelling is with humanity and He will live with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them and and will be their God. Let earth receive Him physically. Next, let earth receive Him wholeheartedly. God promises some realities about the new heavens and earth. Namely, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now, there is an already present realization of these truths that I don't know if we fully experience as we have access and ability to. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And to handle some of the issues that the fall and sin does in the world, we should utilize those fruits. Paul says to Timothy in his second letter to him that merely by the first advent, he says... The appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, He has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So in other words, in a sense, death should be of no consequence anymore to us. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life and immortality are our consequences, good consequences of the gospel. Even the pain of when loved brothers and sisters in Christ die. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians? He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. I'm not saying these things are easy. (laughs) And I'm not saying that when Paul or James tells us to consider it joy when we face trials, it's easy. But if we truly live with the Holy Spirit in us, there is a way, a type of realization that this should be taking place in our lives place in our lives right now, that He will 
wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be of no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. But what is the promise of Christ's second coming? That the previous things have passed away. See, that that remains for us so that when the previous heavens and earth do pass away, more literally, more fully, there will be no reason to cry. There will be no more death, grief, pain. That's what awaits us as earth receives her king wholeheartedly. Then, finally in this section, thus says the Lord, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to level with you. If I'm completely honest, there's a part of me that struggles to believe this. Stuff I'm preaching through right now. Because I can't see it. I don't know if I can even blame it on 2020. Maybe you're like me and you look around and you see and you feel the profound weight of sin and all the problems and the tragedies. And that shouldn't happen. Those people shouldn't die. These innocent ones shouldn't be abused. Those voiceless ones shouldn't be murdered by the millions. And those corrupt leaders shouldn't be leading. And you and I struggle. Because history tells us there's nothing new under the sun. There have always been tragedies. There's always been sinners sinning. There's always been innocent people being mistreated. And what this is saying, it sounds good. (laughs) It sounds really good. And it's almost as if Jesus Christ, whom John tells us in the first chapter of Revelation, is relaying this message directly to John. It's as if Jesus knew my heart and my thoughts. And because he does, as he lays out this vision that sounds really good, perhaps he heard my doubts. And he wants me to be able to bank on him. The one seated on the throne. That is authority. The sovereign of the universe. (laughs) He said, look, I am. He has a name. Covenantial name. The same I am who showed up to Moses speaks and he says... He is, present tense, making everything new. He also said, write to John, because these words are faithful and true. These are not outdated words. They're not ancient, mythical words. They're not words devoid of power. These are words that are faithful and true. And you might say, but it's been a long time. Those words are upwards of 1900 and some years old. But we already had an answer for this in Peter. He's not taking a long time because he's old, not coming, and he forgot. He's taking a long time because he's kind and he's patient and he wants everybody to repent. But he is coming. Then he said to me, it is done. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But he says again when he comes back, when he comes to the fact that he has come, coming again, it is done. It's decided. It's got a date on the calendar. It's planned. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There was a beginning, and God stands and rules and reigns beyond that beginning forever before, and he is a sovereign. He is the sovereign ever after. 
So, joy to the world, there will be a new heavens and a new earth where no sin, no curse, no problem will stand. The bride will come down out of heaven. The earth will be God's and His bride's. Let earth receive her king. He will physically dwell with His people. He will wholeheartedly dwell with His people, removing every reason for pain and grief. Thus says the Lord, He will come, let earth receive her king. And now, let every heart prepare him room. That's how we finish today. Finishing verse 6 and going through verse 8. He says, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Because Jesus has given John a book to write, long before the consummation, before he returns at the end of time, Jesus gives through John the, through John the gospel invitation. And in light of such glorious realities that should be inviting to anybody, a new heavens, a new earth where no more pain, illness, tragedy, injustice, corruption exists, Jesus doesn't need to beat around the bush when he lays it out. First he says, I will freely give. I'm going to say it, Jesus is very liberal. (laughs) He doesn't only have a limited quantity of grace or of kindness. He's not exclusive to a certain few. But, he is exclusive exclusive about his liberal giving. And that he only gives to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. See, God doesn't force himself on anybody. He only lavishly pours out on people who know their thirst. Now, sadly, the reality is that everyone is thirsty... Only some don't know it. You might say, how does that happen? I have a confession for you. Most mornings I get up to read my Bible. What do I make to read my Bible? There you go. Man, you guys know me. I have my second cup of coffee by breakfast, and then I have decaf in the afternoon. Now, most days I'm drinking water a little bit here and there, but I've been drinking lots of water, it seems, by dinner time and in the evening, because my body the whole day is like saying... You know, the coffee tastes good, but I would like my water unfiltered, please. (laughs) Jesus uses this imagery of thirst throughout the Bible. In places like Isaiah 55 or John 4, and we're supposed to consider, why do we drink things that don't quench our thirst? Why do we buy food that doesn't satisfy, right? God is saying this, we know He does truly satisfy, yet we ignore Him. Romans 1 says humanity is without excuse. The reality of God should be so present to us. Do you know the thirst? Where you do job after job and live in place after place and try experience after experience and try new hobbies and new causes and while others or yourself call yourself adventurous or you like to try new things, meet new people, the reality is that you're searching. Desperately searching for something to quench a thirst that only God can quench. Come to Him with your thirst. He won't withhold living water. 
The one who who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Much of the book of Revelation is concerned with the plights and sufferings of saints. Um, I believe much of the book of Revelation, since it opened with letters to seven general churches in the Roman Empire at the time, has to deal with suffering under the notoriously evil Roman Empire and the persecution they caused. However, Jesus says generally to his disciples that the world hates him and the world will hate his disciples. You and I know that today. This seems to be true. Whether it's outright persecution in other countries or maybe more subtle persecution, we have an enemy, but it's not flesh and blood, says Paul, so don't get angry at people. Rather, it's the same enemy we've had since the beginning, that serpent in the garden. He's still doing battles in a defeated war, but sometimes he's victorious and he defeats saints. But Jesus promises to the one who conquers who overcomes, who knows their thirst and drinks from the living water and stays the course, he or she will inherit these things. The new heavens and the new earth, the immortal life of no pain, suffering, and sickness, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Adopted. You will be adopted and be a Jesus family. That is another reality that happens when you accept Christ today but is more fully realized in the future. And then the opposite has consequences as well. This is the uplifting note we end on. Don't worry, I'll make it more uplifting for you. But the cowards and faithless and detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It takes courage to side with the king in a world of rebels. Let me say that again. It takes courage to side with a king in a world of rebels. This is God's world. He's sovereign. It's why he made it in Genesis 1 and he has authority to remake it here in Revelation 21. And in Genesis 6, he's depressed and grieves and and he's judged the world as unfit and he needs a flood to start over. And at the end of the world, he's storing up wrath for a day of fire. Because in Genesis 6, he remade the world to prepare the way ultimately for Jesus. But in the last day, he remakes the world to prepare the way for Jesus' kingdom, the church. And for those who know their thirst and accept Christ and become his, they are siding with a king in a world of rebels. It takes courage. So some fail. Some fail beforehand and never accept Christ. Or some like Jesus talks about the four soils, seem to accept Christ, but soon find themselves cowardly. The pressure is too much. Faithless. They think God has failed them, or they've been argued out of a weak faith with misleading lies. Detestable, or to be godless, or to be void of His ways. Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, or other religious... And idolaters are people who take God off of His throne and many times, unbeknownst to themselves, they place another God on the throne. Usually, that God can be themselves, someone else, a cause, a food, a drink, a thing, where everything in their life revolves around them having this thing. To join the world in spite of God 
It's to be part of that world that God will do away with when He brings the new heavens and the new earth. And so the question is, is are you thirsty? Are you thirsty in life seeking to fill your life with anything? Are you thirsty for a new heavens and a new earth? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we read about history in the future. It is done. Something you have decreed. Something that will happen. Something that you're not going to take back. Change my mind. Father, it's so great to know that because we are pilgrims and strangers waiting. Father, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Father, we are excited because you've given us a down payment. You've given us a foreshadow, a foretaste, the first fruits through your Holy Spirit. To know that when your Holy Spirit is working in us, it is tangible evidence to say, I have yet more to do. This world will be completely redeemed. And you've given us the great joy of being part of that redemption to hasten your coming. Father, it's like a carpenter who builds a huge house and you throw a toy hammer our way. Say, come, I need some help. Father, don't let that dissuade us from thinking that we do little, but we do quite a bit whenever we are faithful and obedient to you. We read about that in Hebrews 11, all these people who were faithful. And because of their faithfulness, your son Jesus came. So help us to be just as faithful. To know that while we anticipate a great new heavens and a new earth help us to anticipate actively by participating Father help us this week as we come across neighbors friends and family who need your word who are thirsty and they don't know it help us to bring the water Father we thank you for the opportunity we have we ask and pray all these things in Jesus name Amen